You're just a fool to believe you can change the world. Or is that just what we've been convinced of? You know, the older I get, which isn't very old, the older I get, um, the more hopeful I become. You know, the, the more I see the good in others. Um, with each year, I, I just am more convinced that I have the ability to change the world and impact it in a real great way. Isn't that your experience? I've found that cynicism is one of the great gifts that age bestows upon you. And, um, you know, as time marches on, we see the pain. We see the angst. We, we, we see all these things happening in the world around us. And we start to lose just a little bit of that belief that we can change the world. In fact, um, we'll even get like a little bit dismissive about it, right? You see someone who's like, I can change the world. And you're just like, oh, you're so cute. You're like a little puppy dog. Oh, someday you'll see. Or, you know, we see a, a, a certain commercial on television, as the song said, and we'll be dismissive because we'll assume that, well, you know, the, the people running that organization are benefiting from it. That, that money will never get to those children. Or um, maybe we'll just rationalize and go, well, I, you know, I do other things like that. Or is that just me? But here's the truth. You can change the world or the world can change you. Those are your options. And we, as a church, have made a conscious decision here at Mosaic. We want to be the type of people who change the world in great ways and in small ways. And that's why over the course of this month, we've identified about 30 different opportunities to love where we live. Because we believe the best way to change the world is to love the people in this world. And I was just talking to someone this week who had, um, who had served during the challenge, and um, this is what she said that was worth sharing. You know, it was really great to serve the community and have an impact there, but I was really surprised by how much I just really enjoyed working alongside people at Mosaic, getting to know them, making connections with them. And, and so I really want to encourage you that if you haven't signed up yet, um, you should have received a handout on your way in. Do it now. Sign up now. You can, you can shut down for 30 seconds. You have my permission to tune me out and sign up right now. Uh, my family's going to be at David Clifton Ministries on the 30th, so um, would love to have you serve alongside us if, if that's a day that works for you. Is it foolish? Maybe. But if it is, man, I hope we have a church just full of people who are foolish enough to believe that we can change the world and take this love thing seriously. Because you can change the world or the world can change you. We can help shape the, the thoughts, beliefs, and practices of the world around us and, and change the world through the power of this agape love that we've found in Jesus or... We can be discipled by the thoughts, beliefs, and practices of the world around us and be made in its image. 
And this is the very reason that Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians that we've been looking at. And so this year, um, we've been walking through our values as a church. We have six values, and this is we love where we live. So I want to share that value with you really quick here. Um, We love where we live. This is what we mean when we say it, that love drives us to live on mission and bring shalom to all we touch. From across the street to across the globe, we get out of our seats to change the story. We want to change the story of the world around us. And that's what we mean when we say this, but, but what does it look like to actually do that? How do we go about bringing shalom to the city, bringing about peace and, and making things as they should be? Well, we'll look at that in a moment, but before we do, um, I want to ask a question. So show of hands, get your hands ready. Show of hands, how many of you were here last week? If you're online, you can, you can put up a little hand emoji. How many of you were here last week? Kirk did um, a message, and he interviewed uh, Quinn Cordova, who's a member of our church, a local police officer, a really fantastic message. I highly recommend if you weren't here, if, you, if your hand wasn't up. Man, get on our website, go check it out, um, or go to our our podcast. We're on most of the podcast platforms, and and check it out. As I said, it was fantastic, but I got to admit, I was a little disappointed. I was a little disappointed last week. Um, You know, Kirk was teaching, and I, I don't know, I just thought for myself, surely he'll talk about this. Surely he'll do this. I know Kirk. He's gonna do this. And I was waiting and I was waiting and it never came. It was Kirk's 92nd seminary lesson. Yeah. Yeah. He gives us these all the time. What the heck? And so, um, I don't know. I left disappointed and I thought to myself, well, what do I got to do? I got to give the people what they want. So here's your 92nd Seminary lesson. Yeah, see, I love the excitement. Um, So Paul, he writes this letter to the church in the city of Corinth. And it's an important city in the first century Rome. It's a wealthy city in a really strategic location. And so it had this steady stream of travelers and merchants. It's booming. So to, to help you wrap your head around it, what it looked like in this city. This is what one commentator said about it. He said that it was the New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas of the ancient world all at once. It was filled with these shrines to various gods that they worshiped. The most notable was the Temple of Aphrodite. It it sat on the top of a mountain to the south side of the city. It's 1,900 feet tall. I know, we're shaming this little mountain mile high, 1,900 feet, not that great. But um, very prominent. It stood out. And Aphrodite, if you're not aware, was the Greek goddess associated with love, beauty, and yes, sexuality. It was said that the temple may have had as many as 1,000 prostitutes there to serve the men who worshipped there. So Corinth was this city so associated with sexual vice that they came up with a term. The term was Corinthiazo. And it meant that you're acting like a Corinthian. 
you're you're so Corinthian. You're you're such a Corinthianite. Uh, You know, Corinthian-ish? I don't know. Um, It represented debauchery and promiscuity. This was the city that this church resided in, a city that was far from God. And Paul was well acquainted with the city. He lived there for three years. And so he's writing what's called an occasional letter. Just simply means there's a reason he's writing this letter. There's an occasion. And the occasion for him writing this letter was that there was a problem. And the problem was that the Corinthian church was having a difficult time differentiating itself from the city that they lived in. They were falling into the patterns and practices of the city that did not look anything like the way of Jesus. Some would say, well, the problem is the city that they, that they lived in, that the city had such a stronghold on them that they couldn't break free. But I, I really like the way that, that Jeff said it a few weeks ago. He said the problem was not that the church was in Corinth, but that Corinth was in the church. And so Paul addresses some pretty serious stuff, Um, division, incest, lawsuits, prostitution, all happening within the church, just to name a few things. Like, this Corinthian church was a mess. And he wanted them to bring the church into the city. But instead, what was happening is the city had invaded the church. You can change the world, or the world will change you. And so in the middle of this letter, he goes into this beautiful description of what love is and how it's an essential ingredient to bringing the church into the city, or as we like to call it, loving where we live. And so I want to bring this slide up. You guys should have received um, near the beginning of this uh, service, no, series, Um, you should have received a magnet that looks a lot like this. And man, these magnets were going like hotcakes. We had to order them three different times. So I hope you got one. Um, but the intent was that you would put it on your fridge, put it on your locker, put it someplace prominent in your world so that you can remember what love looks like. And so what Paul said is that love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. This is what love really looks like, and it is a perfect description of how we can love where we live. And so today, as we've done in previous weeks, we're, we're going to focus on two of these distinctives of loving where we live. The first is that love keeps no record of wrongs. And so the, the term that's used here in the Greek for keeps no record is logizitai. And it's an accounting term that basically means um, it keeps no account. It it doesn't record them. It it doesn't mean that it never occurred, but it's as if they're not credited to the account holder. Or in this case, the offender. 
And so despite the fact that it happened, it's not counted against you. And this is a phrase that's actually used 11 times in Romans chapter 4. So I want to read just a brief segment of Romans 4. It's verses 7 through 8. It says this. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them. Like This is what Jesus has done for us. He's forgiven our transgressions. He has not logizitai. He has not counted our sins against us. Jesus sees our mistakes, and he loves us anyways. Now that's love. That's the kind of love that Paul encourages us to have in the book of Ephesians, where he says this. He says, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other. And this is the key. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. Now, I know that for me, it is so much harder to hold on to anger, to hold on to bitterness, to hold a grudge when I think about the filth that Jesus has forgiven me for. I've been hurt, but I've hurt people. I've been lied to, but I've told lies. I've been insulted, but sadly, I've insulted others too. And now I've I've certainly been on the receiving end of some things that I, I did not deserve. But you know what? One of those things is grace. I, I don't know how I can go through life having received this grace and not extend it to others just like me. And yet, we live in a culture that seems to enjoy drumming up our previous mistakes in order to cancel us. Just this week, we saw how some terrible emails can get you canceled. So, so many of you saw, I, I, came, I came out on kickoff Sunday as a Raiders fan. I know. And I've, I've received a lot of prayer since then, I know. Um, and some of you are like, oh, I'm done. I'm checked out. You know, I, I apologize, but I got to be real about this. Yes, I'm a Raiders fan. I'm going to the game today. Super excited about it. But to say that I was disappointed by the, the speech through email of Raiders coach John Gruden is a wild understatement. I mean, he literally spoke horribly about every marginalized group you can think of, LGBTQ, race, women. He belittled each of them multiple times in numerous ways. It's, it's really disappointing. And the consequences for his actions, canceled. Right? He had to resign as the coach. He, had, um, he lost all of his endorsements. And sadly, we will probably never see Frank Caliendo do his John Gruden impersonation again, which is a real loss. It's hilarious. Um, I bring this up. Why? Because this is how the world deals with our mistakes. 
And I absolutely believe there should be consequences for our actions, so please don't, don't hear me saying anything about that. But what I'm most interested in is how the people in John Gruden's life have responded to this. And it seems, from what I've seen, that most people have canceled him as a person. They've called him a bad person. They've attacked his character. Um, They've spoken out against him. And so I want to share with you Derek Carr's comments on the issue. So Derek is the, um, he's the quarterback for the Los Angeles, Las Vegas Raiders. They used to be Los Angeles. And um, he's played for Gruden for several years as a result. He's also a Jesus follower. And I think you'll see as I read this why I think it stands out from everything else I've seen. He says, you all know me, man. I don't condone that kind of talk. I don't talk that way. My kids sure as heck will never talk that way. And it's hard because I love the man so much. Like, I have family members that have done things. I've done things that I'm glad I'm still loved. I think more than anything, coach needs people to help him, to love him in whatever areas we can. He says a lot of other stuff, but this is kind of what he concludes with. He says, but long story short, you feel for everyone involved. But I will always be someone, no matter who, no matter who does what, I'm gonna love you. And if that's wrong, I'm okay being wrong. I'm gonna try and build people up no matter what. That doesn't make what they did right, but I'm always going to be there to try and be there on the next step, on the other side, to try and lift them back up and love them again. Man, there's a stark contrast from his comments and what I'm hearing everywhere else. This is agape love. This is a love that says, despite your shortcomings, despite where you've messed up, I'm gonna walk alongside of you. And I think we all know that this is not easy. And in some cases, honestly, it's best for the person who was hurt not to walk alongside the one who hurt them. I totally understand that. Um, Forgiveness is hard. It's not easy to forgive someone who's hurt you. It's not easy to let go of our deepest wounds. But this is what it looks like. To, To love people despite their missteps. To not hold their mistakes against them. And wherever possible, to walk alongside of them. And I love the way that Carr said it. He says, I want to lift them back up, to love them up again. That's the love of Jesus. And this is what it looks like for us to love where we live, to love the person who hurts you, or maybe the group of people that hurt you, that offended you, despite whatever the offense is. That's right, this is not just relegated to individuals, but groups of people as well. This could be a political party. This could be the church, or a local expression of the church. This could be a group of friends, um, family members, a former employer, um, an organization that's hurt you. 
I think we all have to ask, is, is there someone or a group of someones that I'm counting their wrongs and how they've wronged me against them? And we want to take the hard first step towards forgiveness. Talking about it with someone that we're close to, um, walking through that pain, offering it to Jesus. Not, not to forget, I think it's really cliche, right? We talk about, well, you gotta forgive and forget. And I don't, I don't think that's what Paul's advocating. I don't think that's what the scriptures really advocate. It's not to forget, it's actually to know that it happened, to, to remember that it happened and still forgive. That's powerful. See, love cancels sins, not people. And this needs to be a distinctive of the church. Like this needs to be something that that stands out, something that sets us apart from the rest of the world. And I don't believe that that is the narrative when people outside of the church think about the church. Love not only forgives, though, uh, as we continue in this passage, it reads that love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices in the truth. So let me remind you who Paul is writing to. He's writing to a church in a city that's, that's hedonistic, promiscuous, like running the opposite direction of Jesus. And if you look at the earlier parts of this letter, as I said earlier, you know, Paul is dealing with some pretty um, serious issues. But he's not just dealing with the issues. It's the way that the church is responding to those issues. And so he wrote in uh, chapter 5, he says, It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and a kind that even pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And here's the kicker. You are proud. The the church in Corinth is celebrating sin. Again, Corinth had permeated the church rather than the church permeating Corinth. Does any of this sound familiar? People celebrating sin? I mean, I think it's everywhere in our culture, right? People are, are running the opposite direction of Jesus as fast and hard as they can. And all the while, they have people cheering them on, clapping and celebrating as if they're running the last leg of a marathon. And can I share something that might surprise you? That is exactly what we should expect. Like, why would we ever expect people far from God to run towards him and point others towards him? We shouldn't be surprised when our culture points people towards and even celebrates things that are contrary to following Jesus. Honestly, wouldn't it be weird if they did? And so Paul, he doesn't seem surprised by this. In fact, he doesn't even really talk about it. He doesn't address it. What he does address, what is surprising, what what is discouraging, what should grieve our hearts is when the church joins in on the celebration. It's when the church takes on or even advances ideas and behaviors that are contrary to what God has laid out for us. Like we're called to help people experience a Jesus-centered life. The world celebrates evil, 
The world celebrates promiscuity. The world celebrates narcissism that, that pushes itself to the top no matter what gets in the way. The world celebrates cancel culture. The church cannot. We cannot. And so what do we do? I know the answer, right? We grab our Bible, the big heavy one, and we thump everyone we can on the head with it as hard as possible, right? Yeah, we make sure that they see the error of their ways and we condemn them right to hell. Hold on. Let's go back to what Paul says. Paul says love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but it rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And so we rejoice in the truth and we share that truth in love. We're patient with those who are going the wrong direction. We're kind to those that are running away from Jesus. We're not proud or arrogant of the fact that that we have found the truth. Because honestly, it's by the grace of God that we've found that. We don't dishonor those that we disagree with or those that are running from Jesus. We don't condemn evil with some type of self-serving attitude as if it's a spiritual notch in our belt. We don't allow our anger to make us violate the way of love. And nor do we celebrate the evil that exists around us. Instead, we trust Jesus to deal with the evil around us. We place all of our hope in him and we persevere in love. We cannot violate the terms of love in the name of love. We can't do it to our friends. We we can't do it to our unbelieving family members. We can't do it on social media. Oh my gosh, please stop trying. We can't do it through paper pamphlets or blog posts. And I'm not saying we don't address evil. I'm not saying that at all. What I am saying is we cannot violate the terms of love in the name of love. We gotta do this the right way. And I have seen far too many angry Christians with their metaphorical megaphone shouting at the world that they're going to hell. Instead, we rejoice in the truth. We celebrate the fact that I once was lost, but now I'm found. That that Jesus sees my sin, he sees my problems, he sees my mistakes, and he loves me anyways. He doesn't count those things against me. And so so what do we do 
with all of this? Because that's really the question, right? You, you took an hour or so of your time today, and um, we want that time to be valuable. In fact, every week we hope that you walk away with something that helps you live a little bit more Jesus-centered. And so as we think about that, how about we go back to the beginning? You can change the world, or the world can change you. You can be discipled by the the thoughts, beliefs, and practices of the world and be made in its image, or you can help shape the thoughts, beliefs, and practices of the world around you by practicing the way of love. There really is no in-between. You can embrace cancel culture. You can write off the people who have hurt you. Or you can take steps towards forgiveness. You can can find a friend, someone who's going to point you to Jesus, point you towards forgiveness, and have them walk alongside of you as you process this. It doesn't happen overnight. Or you can find a a Christian counselor to talk about this and point you in the way of love towards the goal of forgiveness. That is the whole reason that you walk through this, is that goal of forgiveness. It is such a process. Please don't hear that I think this is easy. I know it's not. But there is something special that happens when we are able to forgive those that have really hurt us. You can join the world and celebrate the people running the opposite direction of Jesus, or you can grab your metaphorical megaphone and shout to them how they're going to hell. Or you can celebrate the truth in the way of love. And honestly, I think that this might be a blind spot, like a huge blind spot for a lot of us. A place where we don't even realize that we're missing the mark, and yet we are. And I think there's a couple reasons for this. Sometimes I feel like um, we're just going with the culture around us. We're kind of go with the flow, and we don't always recognize that what's happening in culture is contrary to Scripture, The other reason is I think that sometimes we just desperately want whatever it is to be okay. Maybe it's that we struggle with an issue, or I think in many times, it's actually that someone we love struggles with an issue. And we just so, we desperately want this to be okay for them. We want them to be okay. We want it to be okay. And and so what do we do? We ignore what God's written in the scriptures. We ignore what God's written on our hearts. And we celebrate these things in, in the name of love. And yet, Paul's telling us that is not what love is. A well known Bible verse kind of comes to mind as I try to think this stuff through and identify my blind spots. Um, It's Psalm 139, um, or it's a couple verses from Psalm 139. It says, uh, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. 
Here's the key. See if there's any offensive way in me. See where I'm missing the mark. See where I'm celebrating sin. See where I'm ignoring the truth of Scripture. See where I have unforgiveness in my heart. And lead me in the way everlasting. Can I just encourage you that this week to make that psalm a prayer? That you would ask God, just show me where I'm missing the mark on this. Show me my blind spots. And then, and this is the much harder part, ask him for the wisdom and the courage to deal with it in the way of love. And so on the way out, not yet, but on the way out, you're going to receive a card, and it's going to remind you of these two things. And if they sound hard, it's because it is. Loving people is hard. Man, you guys suck sometimes. Um, <laughs> loving people is hard. Following Jesus, it's hard. He says, lay down your cross and follow me. This is not an invitation to a party. This is an invitation to something incredibly difficult that we cannot do on our own. You cannot do this on your own. You cannot forgive the people who've hurt you on your own. You cannot rejoice in the truth on your own. We are broken. But we have a God who has given us his spirit to live inside of us, to reside within us, to lead us and to guide us as we walk in the way of love. And so we're gonna pray that he'll do just that. Would you pray with me? Oh, Jesus, we, uh, we come to you just in humility, recognizing our own brokenness, recognizing where we fall short in these areas, recognizing that we don't always walk in the way of love. And God, I pray that you would help us, that, that you, that your spirit would just spring forth in all the places we fall short, in our weaknesses, would you be strong? Would your spirit rise up and help us to live in the way of love, to, to live our faith in a way that loves where we live? Because we can't do it on our own strength. And we don't want to. And so God, we surrender ourselves to you. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.